Praise the Lord, everybody. I said, praise the Lord, everybody. It's one of the few moments in my life where <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to say. <laughs> but we're going to praise God. Is that all right? Why don't you pray with me? Father and our God. Help him, Lord. Help him, help him. We come today, God, with <sighs> gratefulness on our hearts for your faithfulness. Yes. I have no complaints today. Yes, Lord. No complaints. Thank you, Jesus. You've been too good. I cannot complain. You've done everything. I cannot lie on you today. You've been too good. Great is your mercy. Oh yeah. Great is your faithfulness. You alone are worthy. If I had a thousand tongues, God, I could not praise you enough. Help him, Lord. Help him. As I look back, I see you moving, God. I see you picking me up and leading me all the way. Even when I have not been faithful, you have been, God. Even when I have not been true to your word, God, when I have not followed your commands, you have always been there, and I cannot complain, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Jesus, today I need your help. Whatever you want to say, just say it, God. Not worried, God, about the kudos or the accolades. Let all that go to Calvary. But now, Lord, loose my tongue, God. Loose my mind. And loose my heart. Bring to my mind the experiences, God. Jesus, that you brought me through. And I'll praise you for the rest of my life. But now, Lord, your people need a word, God. They cannot leave this place, God, the same way they came back in. They cannot leave, God. They cannot leave. They cannot leave without seeing you afresh. You must show up. You must show up. You have to, God. We need you today. You have to. Show up, God, and we'll be careful to give you all praise, all honor, and all glory, God. We lift you up. We join the angels and 24 elders, God. We just cast our crowns at your feet. Surely, Lord, your spirit is already in this place. We don't need to conjure you up. We don't need to invoke your presence. You were already here. Your word says, God, when two or three are gathered in your midst, God, there you are. Now, Lord, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Hold me now, God, and use me, but hide me behind the cross. And when it's all said and done, God, let nobody remember the messenger. Not even so much the message, God, but the master that is in this message. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Put your hands together for God. Oh, wow. mm. yes, How many of you know what your temperament is? <clears throat> well, as far as we know, there are about four temperaments in the world today. To the extreme left would be the sanguine people, high-octane, energetic people. Mercy. When they come in the room, they're usually the life of the party always cracking jokes, and they make friends very easily. Then you have the phlegmatic person. A phlegmatic person is usually 
calm, cool, and collective person, easygoing person. One of their weaknesses, most people say, is that they allow people to walk over them because they usually run away from conflict. <clears throat> and then you have the choleric person. Choleric person is usually described as a leader, the leader of the bunch. Whenever you group people together, you ask them to do an assignment, they usually just rise to the top as the de facto leader because they love to be in charge, and usually they have the gifts for leadership as well. And then to the extreme right, as opposed to the sanguine who is high octane and very energetic, you have the melancholy person. I'm a melancholy person. Melancholy person is usually a very introverted, very uh, reserved person. They don't like to talk much, and most of the time they are absorbed and consumed with their own thoughts. The fact of the matter is, melancholy people usually are on an emotional roller coaster every day of their life. They have very high highs, and when they're high, you will know it. You will see them praising, you'll see them lifting their hands, turning flips and cartwheels and things of that nature. But at the same time, when they have very high highs, they also have very low lows. And when they go down, they usually find a corner or a place to crawl in. They usually don't like to be seen or talk to anybody or share their troubles or their issues with anybody because most of the time, melancholy people are prone also to depression. In my life, I've dealt with that. Actually, probably most of my life. Being so introverted and so reserved, I'm usually concerned and consumed with my own thoughts and with my own life. And don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. Depression is not just some uh, fake illness or disease that people have drummed up. It's real. It's real. It's real. It's real. The fact is, when you are depressed, you feel like nobody cares about you. And most importantly, nobody could possibly understand what you are going through. Well, I've noticed in the world there is a melancholy feeling that is sweeping all over the nation as well. If you look around us, the days are not getting better, are they? People are seeing signs of the Lord's coming, and it seems like things are getting worse. And there are many events within our nation today that are causing people to be very worrisome, very fearful about the future. And most of them are wondering, does God understand what I go through and does God really care? Let me give you a few examples. The economy is shot. Would you agree? <laughs> Crime is at an all-time high. People are being gunned down in the streets. We see this Trayvon Martin story. But let me give you a few extreme examples. There was a pastor, who, Pastor Fred Winters, at First Baptist Church in Marysville, Illinois. Comes close to home to us. Standing in his pulpit one day, he got up to preach as he usually would every Sunday, and he was about to deliver the word of God to the people. Well, little did he know that one estranged gunman was about to come walking down the middle aisle of his church. And that morning he had written in his journal, today is death day. And on that day, in 2009, on March 8, Pastor Friend Winters got up with his Bible in his hand to preach the word of God. And out of nowhere, this gunman comes walking down the middle aisle and discharged four shots. The first shot actually hit the pastor's Bible, exploding it into a cloud of confetti. Another shot hit somebody who was in the audience. Another shot hit the wall behind him, but the last shot hit the pastor in his chest and fatally wounding him, ending up in his death. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, there was a killing spree in Sampson, Alabama, where a young man went up the highway and basically shot 10 people 
and he started with his own mother. There was a girl raped in Richmond, California, 15 years old, and the reports came that at least 20 people passed by the scene as she was being raped, and nobody said or did anything. Help him, Lord. Well, this is one that really strikes me as kind of odd. A young man went to his job. He was living in California, left his house as he usually did to go to work, and behind in his house, he left behind his mother-in-law, his mother and his two baby girls, one of them which was two months old. They were in the living room playing and doing their own thing when out of nowhere, a jet plane crashed into their house, killing all of them. Now here's the question I want to deal with. How is it that you can be sitting in your own house, minding your own business, and a jet plane falls from the sky and kills you. There are different mall shootings that are going on in our nation. <laughs> Military base shootings. And now we've even got school shootings are ramping up to an all-time high. Times like these, it's really no surprise to me that people are literally asking the question. And not only atheists, some Christians as well. Does God really care? And will he take care of us? Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. <laughs> Help me, God. Hmm. Matthew chapter 6. We'll start at verse 25. Word of God says, rather, Jesus says, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry. (laughs) Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Ah, but look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, my Lord, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Why do we worry? O you of little faith, therefore, do not worry. Thank you, God. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, or the pagans seek, or the people that do not know God. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first, thank you Lord, kingdom of God and his righteousness 
And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry. Thank you, Lord. About tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Jesus is famous now. (laughs) Everybody who is anybody knows who he is. And they are amazed at what he is teaching and his persona and his character. People are beginning to wonder now, now, could this be the one that everybody has been talking about? Could this be the Messiah, the ones the prophets spoke about? At this time, the Jews were severely oppressed by the Romans. They had no real national identity of their own anymore. They were completely under the yoke of Roman rule. They wanted an earthly Messiah. They wanted freedom from their troubles and freedom from their problems. The truth is today, that's what most people want. Is that not right? Actually, the fact is people don't really want God to be with them through their problems. They just don't want any more problems. (laughs) I've often asked myself that the same question as well. Now, come on now, Jesus. (laughs) The fact is, I read the other day where uh, uh, Jesus told Peter, Peter, listen, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Now, well, that's good, Jesus, but you could have just prayed for him not to sift me in the first place. No, though, I cannot blame any of us for wanting a scenario of complete peace and happiness. The fact of the matter is God does not condone this type of Christian journey, and neither does the Bible. Now, it would be nice to have no issues and no circumstance that would catch us off guard. It would be nice to have a bliss, a blissful life. It would be nice to walk and everything would be taken care of, our bills and our, our food, and nobody would get sick and nothing would happen to us at all. But the fact of the matter still remains that you have to admit today that if we never had a problem in our life, it would effectively eliminate the priority of God in our lives. In fact, I wouldn't even feel like I actually need him. Forget God. Who needs him? Everything is great. The song that says, I thank God for my mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms. He brought me through for if I never had a problem, come on, you know it, I would not know that God could solve them, and I'd never know what faith in God could do. Yes. And as much as it pains me to say it today, Pastor, sometimes we need something that we cannot handle on our own to draw us out of us a faith that we never knew we actually had. (laughs) So Jesus has become a public icon now in Israel. Everybody's tweeting about him. (laughs) Putting up Facebook posts. He's all in the newspaper. He's everywhere. He's a household name now. People have heard of his miracles and his unexplainable works. They cannot define nor really describe what he's actually doing. And crowds of people now have begun to flock to his side. And so seeing this numberless multitude, he goes up to the Mount of Olives in this text. And it says that Jesus begins to speak. Now, most preachers will begin to tell you that this, in some respects, may be Jesus's inaugural address. It's his first sermon and probably the best sermon that has ever been written in history. But at this point, he has already chosen his 12 disciples, his 12 member cabinet. And now it's time for Jesus to fully address the nation and tell them what his kingdom is all about to explain his reform campaign. 
However, Jesus was not the average politician. <laughs> Jesus was not the person that would grab babies and kiss them for the camera so he looked good in the spotlight. It's not the guy to go down to the barbershop and get a haircut as a publicity stunt. Wasn't the type of guy just to say whatever he felt like, just to make the people feel good so that they would vote for him so that he could have that approval that he needed from everybody. That was not Jesus. He was not that type of politician who made empty promises. And he wasn't the type of politician that was really only a figure on the TV screen that you never see. Now, I'm not naive today. I don't ever expect to see Barack Obama in person. I'm not banking on that. I'm not really expecting that. I don't desire and I don't expect to see him walking down my street one day. And I surely don't believe that uh, Obama would come on my doorstep and knock on my door and say, hey, I'm President Barack Obama. It's nice to meet you because I'm really not that important. But today, as I look at this text, it's just marvelous to me to see how many insignificant people Jesus came in contact with by choice, face to face. The people who were the least and the last, lowliest and the left out, people who he could not extort or gain anything from because they did not have anything anyway. And look at the story of blind Bartimaeus, blind from birth, did not have anything to give Jesus. Even his disciples said, Jesus, do not listen to him. He's a blind beggar. We got other stuff to do. But the Bible says Jesus stopped and asked him what? would you have me do for you? Well, then look at the man at the pool of Bethesda. Lame man, lame from birth 38 years. The Bible says Jesus stopped and asked him, what would you have me do for you? But then look at the Samaritan woman at the well, my Lord. Now, first of all, Jews and Samaritans don't even like each other. It was not proper in that time for a Jewish grown man to be talking to a woman in public anyway. So not only is he talking to a woman, he's talking to a Samaritan woman, which he is naturally supposed to hate. But Jesus delivers her from her problems. It's the people who did not expect a prominent figure, a miracle worker to take notice of them. Yet Jesus would find his way to those people because of his concern for them. Amen. And in fact, these common people were the ones who constituted the crowd that day that was listening to Jesus as he spoke. And so now, and so now to the Mount of Olives, he's a prominent figure. He's a miracle worker and he's poised to make his speech and outline now the tenets of his kingdom. But little do people understand at this point that his kingdom is not of this world. Now, I could not put it into better words myself, although I tried. So I'm going to read to you what Sister White says about this occasion in the atmosphere of the moment. She says, a feeling of expectancy pervaded the multitude also. And eager faces gave evidence of the deep interest. As the people sat upon the green hillside awaiting the words of the divine teacher, their hearts were filled with thoughts of future glory. There were scribes and Pharisees who looked forward to the day when they should have dominion over the hated Romans and possess the riches and splendor of the world's great empire. The poor peasants and the fishermen that were in the crowd that day hoped to hear the assurance that their wretched hovels, their scanty food, 
The life of toil and fear of want were to be exchanged for mansions of plenty, praise the Lord, and days of ease in place of the one coarse garment that they had during the day, which was also their covering by night. All the hearts of the people thrilled with the proud hope that Israel was soon to be honored before the nations as the chosen of the Lord. And Jerusalem exalted as the head of the universal kingdom. But get this and get this in your spirit. (laughs) Then she says, but Christ disappointed their hopes of worldly greatness. Now catch the scene now. You have people in the crowd who are poor peasants. They're the common folk. They have no money. They have no food. They have no clothes. They are looking for their next meal each and every day. And they are tired of being oppressed. They want food and they want clothing. They want money. They want cars. They want to be released from the pain and toil of life that gives them that melancholy feeling each and every day. They are depressed. They are oppressed. They are beat down by the vicissitudes of life. And when they finally see Jesus stand up on the Mount of Olives, they say, oh, Lord, it's over now. Praise God. They bring out the confetti. They start the parade going. They say, man, we're going to get what is ours now. Everything's going to be great. We're going to have mentions of plenty, more food than we could ever want. We'll have all the clothes. And now we're going to be the ones oppressing the Romans. But Ellen White says that Christ disappointed their hopes. You have people in this crowd who were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Many of the sick people that Jesus would heal thereafter were in the crowd that day. And they were hoping that Jesus would stand up there and say, all of your problems are over. I'm king now. (laughs) Y'all going to be in charge. My Lord. People have troubles, and they want freedom from them. People are sick in the crown. They don't want to be sick anymore. They believe that Jesus is the one that God has sent. That the hard times are over. People got money problems. They don't want to pay bills anymore. They believe that it's going to be free health care now. <laughs> no bills for nobody. Everybody's going to have a house of their own, a chicken in every pot. I said chicken. Not chickens. The problems in their minds have become overwhelming and they are scared now for their livelihood. And so they want this young upstarter, this young newfound firebrand named Jesus to free them from what they're going through and set up a kingdom where they would move now from the bottom to the top. Now, truth is, most of them had lost their faith in God up until this point. And they were so concerned about the issues of the day and the situation of the world that in their minds, because they had an earthly problem, they needed an earthly solution that they could see for themselves. But Ellen White says that Christ (laughs) disappointed their hopes of worldly greatness. And more so than that, Jesus says some questionable things now that we have to wrestle with. He speaks on a variety of topics. Talks about adultery and divorce, salt and light, murder and oaths and giving to the needy prayer and so on. But really, none of this is what they were expecting to hear. 
Jesus now pushes the envelope and he does not say that if you hop into bed with somebody, you've committed adultery. Now he says, if you even look at a woman, my God, and you lust in your heart, you have already done it. What? What? Not only if you take out a gun and shoot somebody, not only if you take out a knife and stab them in the back, now if you just hate somebody, you've already killed them. What? Then he says, oh, Lord Jesus, why? (laughs) If somebody slaps you on one side, don't fight back now. Don't retaliate in any way. Do not seek your own revenge, but turn to the other side and let them slap you again with you. <laughs> then he says, Mercy. Somebody asked for your coat. Don't only give them your coat, give them your coat. Your pants, your underwear, your shirt, your belt, your cufflinks, give them everything. Now, 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 wait a minute now, Jesus. Hold on now. This is a little bit radical here. What, 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 what are you talking about? During this time, you must know that the Roman people could ask anything of the Jews and they had to do it. And so the Jews at this time are now listening to what Jesus is saying and saying, what? Are you telling me I actually have to obey them? And then he says, somebody asks you to carry their load a mile. Don't just go one mile. Go two. (laughs) Go three. Go wherever they ask you to go. And so Jesus is now completely and utterly radical at this point. This is not what the people are expecting to hear. And more than that, and this is the main thing that gets me every single time. Not only did he say all that, Jesus says, now, love your enemies. Hold on, hold on now. But not only love your enemies, bless those that curse you. (laughs) Thank God for them. Y'all not getting this. The man said, love your enemies and bless those that curse you. And count it a joy when people persecute you for righteousness sake. So the people are listening to Jesus. Leaving. What is going on here? Jesus, we need help. We are poor and depressed and oppressed. We need money and food. And you're talking about love our enemies. My God, man, where is your sense? And I feel like that when we finally get to Matthew 6 and verse 25, Jesus is now perceiving what they're thinking in their minds. And then finally, Jesus addresses their concerns with something more relevant to their time. And he looks around and he says, consider the birds. The Bible says it better than I can. Look at all the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, 
yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Now take a moment and think about the birds. Now they simply do not worry about the necessities of life. Would you agree? They go wherever they want. They definitely don't have any concern for anybody's private property. That's for sure. (laughs) They chirp all day and sing all night. And they seem to live a very carefree life. They just do what birds do day in and day out. And you would think that they do not have a care in the world. Seems like they don't get anxious about tomorrow. They're not worried. Like they know it's not any of their concern. They just live the bird life. And the Bible says they don't even work. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet God feeds them. Man, they got it easy. (laughs) They can live from day to day because they have sense enough to know that God will supply every one of their needs. And Jesus then asked the question, are you not much better than sparrows? Charles Spurgeon says that if a thousand sparrows fell from the sky in one moment, it would not cause any grievous action by humanity. In other words, we would not really mourn them. We wouldn't box them up and carry them to Cleveland Memorial Gardens and have a service for them. It wouldn't really be that big of a deal because sparrows are really of no account to us. And in fact, they are some of the smallest birds in the world. But then Jesus says (laughs) that not one of them falls from the sky without your heavenly father knowing about it. Now put this in your mind, y'all. Later on in Matthew, he talks about how a little sparrow is just sold for a penny, yet they cannot escape the watch of their Savior. God knows each and every one of them by name. And then he asked the question, how much better are you? My Lord. Well, there was a story of Mrs. Doolittle and Charles Gabriel. Mrs. Doolittle was an invalid and her husband was an incurable cripple. Charles Gabriel and his wife, they traveled to Africa And they met with this young couple as they were living there, well, this old couple as they were living there. And they watched them, how they had so much difficulty in their life, how they had so much problems. But they realized that despite all of the issues, this couple was still happy. So they decided one day, listen, we got to find out the secret. What's going on here? And so they sat them down one day after they became good friends with them and said, listen, how are y'all so happy? You are an invalid And your husband is an incurable cripple. How in the world can you have the peace of God or happiness in your life at all? Mrs. Doolittle looked at the couple and she simply said, his eye is on the sparrow. (laughs) This came now to help them write the hymn, his eye is on the sparrow. Why should I feel discouraged? 
Why should the shadows come? Why in the world should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? A constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. And if I know it's on the sparrow, then I know he watches me. I sing because I am happy. Thank you, God. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. Therefore, I know my God watches me. We should not let the troubles of this world get us down. Just trust in Jesus. Don't let anybody tell you that God is not interested in you when you get that melancholy feeling or feeling of depression in your spirit. Remind yourself that God knows you and he loves you. And if he loves the birds that are insignificant to us and who we pay no attention to, God surely loves us. Are you not much better than sparrows? Now get this. Hmm. So if the birds don't worry about tomorrow and simply day by day they just do what birds do, maybe we should be doing what humans should be doing. Or rather what we have been created to do. And I don't care what anybody tells you, brothers and sisters. Each of us has specific calling and specific purpose in our life. We all have gifts and talents that we can use and render in God's services. But at the end of the day, we have one purpose in life, and that is to worship God. And if we are not doing that, and if we are not trusting him, we have completely unfulfilled our mission. God's trying to get us back to the point where we're in constant communication with him. So Jesus now, he points the attention of the crowd to that day. He points them to, to, to the birds of the air, and he looks around at the environment and all of creation. And really, it's a big attempt to point them back to the day of creation. This was his attempt to bring their minds back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve worshiped God continually. Back to the God of creation. Back to Jehovah Jireh, their creator, their provider and sustainer. Jesus was trying to remind them that their God was not small. Amen. Amen. It's not just the God of Jerusalem where they were. He was not just the God of Galilee. He was not just the God of Israel. He was not just the God of the Middle East. He was not just the God of Asia. He was not just the God of even this world. He's the God of the universe. He is God. And there's nothing more I can say to describe it better than that. He's just God. How can we not trust him? All right. Let me hurry up. Let me hurry up. Now, we serve a God... <laughs> My Lord, I can't even say he holds the sun in his hands, but he spoke everything into existence. And somehow through his miraculous mind, he is both sustaining our lives, ordering our steps, keeping the planets in their orbit, keeping the earth at the right tilt on its axis keeping the stars in their alignment, in their orbit, making sure the sun rises and sets and the moon rises and sets at its appropriate time. And at the same time, he's working out our salvation. He is God. I mean, now, what else can I say? And still yet, he's the same God. 
that stuck his hand in the earth on the sixth day and fashioned us to what we are today. We serve some kind of God. And yet he takes his time to look at the sparrows and ask us the question, how much better are you? Well, let's talk about these lilies for a second and I'll get out of your way. Verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow and how they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is. And tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith. Now, if you thought the birds were bad and they don't do anything, these lilies are even worse. Wow, wow, wow. Bible says <laughs> they don't toil or spin, they don't even move from the spot where they are planted in the earth. And yet, somehow, God adorns them with beauty and with splendor. Thank you, God. And the Bible says that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Sister White says that that phrase, God is love, is written upon every opening bud and every spire of springing grass. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. There is not one single creation that is able to escape the love of God. Even the small, tender, fragile lily of the field. And then Jesus asked the question, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, it seems to me, That the birds, the lilies, and every other creation don't worry about tomorrow or any of their provisions. Am I right about that? They don't stress out about anything. They don't have high blood pressure. They don't have congestive heart failure. They don't start losing their hair. (laughs) They just enjoy life. And that's why Jesus said in verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, what Jesus is basically trying to say is today, this moment right now, which we would call the present is what counts because it is the day that God has given us. It's the day that we are in right now. That we are living and breathing in. God gave you today. You are in today. But God never promised you tomorrow. My Lord. The truth is you might not make it till tomorrow. And And so God says. It makes no sense. For you to worry about anything. Especially not tomorrow. When I have given you today. The question now is, what are you doing for God today? How are you living your life for God 
today? Where are your priorities today? If we continue to live for tomorrow, we'll never get it right today. I've, I've learned in my short time living on this earth, the best thing for me to do is just say yes to God every day. Whatever you say, yes. Whatever you ask, yes. God, I do not know what's going to happen today. I have no idea what situation is going to present itself, but I say yes today to your will and to your way. I love that text that says that God give us our daily bread. And then David says in Psalms 90 verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Help us to realize, God, that we might not even have tomorrow at all. And we should not waste our time worrying about anything when we serve God. God has chastised me on many occasions. When I get that depressive feeling in my mind and in my spirit and in my heart, when the melancholiness within me starts to take over, God reminds me, John, look at the birds. And look at the lilies. Are you not much better than they? Thank you, God. God knows what you need. Would you agree? When you need it, why you need it. He will provide. I'm almost done. Verse 32. Verse 32. I'm all over the place. Here we go. For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Now, when we see what's going on in the world, all of these shootings and killings and people dying and all these calamities and all the sicknesses that is going around in the world, I have to say this today, and it pains me to say it, but it's the truth. God's people should be the last people on earth to be worried. We should be the last people to be discouraged and the last people to be melancholy. One of my mentors tells me like this, son, as a Christian, you are allowed, you are allowed to be disappointed when things don't happen the way you thought they would. But you are never allowed to be discouraged. Not once. Because we serve God. You're not allowed to be discouraged. Oh, no. <laughs> Does not our God say, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I shall come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. God says, do not worry. In this world you will have trouble, but have no fear. I have already overcome the world. I know sometimes we have lamentation three days. (laughs) Jeremiah, they call him the weeping prophet, do they not? A depressed man of God as he surveyed all that God was about to do and how he was going to oppress his own people. Jeremiah was very depressed day in and day out. And you can see that in most of his writings. But most of all in the book of Lamentations, which basically means weeping. But it's weird when we read the book of Lamentations. Turn there. It's just weird. 
Lamentations chapter 3. <laughs> Jeremiah is thinking about his life, thinking about all that God has put him through in his attempts to serve the Lord. And he begins to write this. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. He's talking about God. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin. And he has broken my bones. What? He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. My Lord, he has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, God shuts out my prayer. Wow. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. Come on, God, why? He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. <laughs> he has turned aside my ways and torn me into pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent my, his bow and set up me as a target for his arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all the people, their taunting song day and night. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood, which is poison. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. This man has got some problems here. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. I've been down so long I forgot what up looks like. And I said, my strength and my hope has perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction roaming and the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind. And therefore, I still have hope. Oh, thank you, God. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions do not fail. Thank you, God. They are new every morning. Great. <laughs> Great is thy faithfulness. And so out of all the trouble that we can face on this earth, out of everything that we experience, people dying, getting sick around us, having no money to pay the bills, no food in the refrigerator, kids acting a fool, we can still praise God because truly we should have been consumed. The word of God says that his mercies are new every morning. We are not allowed to be discouraged. We cannot be melancholy. God is good. Ah, uh, help us, Father. You know what? The Word of God tells us that. God will supply each and every one of your needs according to his riches in glory. I'm naturally a very critical and speculative and cynical person. When I see that text, I have to ask myself a major question. How rich is God? 
How rich is God? I mean, really. Do, do, do. Now, the, the word of God says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all they that dwell therein. Now, the word of God also says that for every beast of the field is mine. And I own cattle on a thousand hills. But it sounds like we're just playing at words when we speak those texts. How rich is God? Really? Now, I'm a big fan of MTV Cribs. Some of you watched that show before. I love that thing. Take out the camera and they go to some celebrity's house and they show you exactly where they live. And you can, as you watch the show, you realize that they've got tens of cars. They got ten cars. They got this huge room with a movie theater in it, a bowling alley in their house, all kind of nice furniture, gold fixtures and all manner of things. And it makes you really want to have what they have. But then I also realized something that one of my mentors told me. If you really want to know how rich somebody is, go to their house. Don't look at their clothes now. Don't look at their car. Because their home is their place of comfortability. And more than likely, they will spend the most of their money where they live because that's the place they have to come home to and rest their head. And so I asked myself, how rich is God? And I think I may have actually found the answer. I was not able to go to his house and survey the property. But there was another job. The Bible says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had been passed away. There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw this holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away. Thank you, God. Every tear from their eyes. No more death and no more sorrow. And then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Then verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had, had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, praise the Lord, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, God's house. That great city descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And also she had great and high walls with 12 gates and 12 angels at each of the gates and the names written on them were the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south and three gates to the west. I love this part. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. How many? And on them were the names of 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city. Thank you. And with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, its breadth, and its height are equal. And then he measured the wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of the man. The construction of the wall was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, and the second was sapphire, and the third was chalcedony, and the fourth emerald, and the fifth, so I can't even pronounce these names, sixth was sardis, the seventh was chrysolite, the eighth was beryl, the ninth was topaz, my lord, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. And each individual gate 
was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so really and truly, God is filthy, stinking rich. <laughs> Bible says everything is gold. There's jewels everywhere. Emeralds and diamonds, the foundation. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and when the Bible says he will supply all of our needs, oh, thank you, God. According to his riches in glory. God is rich, and I believe him today. Ah, but the end of that text says, <laughs> I'm almost done. Let me get out of here. <laughs> He'll supply all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I ask myself, what does Christ Jesus have to do uh, with the riches and glory? The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, get this. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers. But with the precious, somebody say precious, blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. We can talk about the jewels of heaven and we can talk about the streets of gold. But at the end of the day, the richest thing that God possesses is the blood of Jesus Christ. And when it covers our lives, we have nothing to worry about. Bible says we have been redeemed by that thing, not by money, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is God so concerned about us? Well, we have to look back at Calvary. See how Jesus died for us. God's riches in Christ Jesus is his blood. Nothing is of more value to God than this. If we accept Christ today, amen. What he has done for us, the Bible says we're adopted into the family. We are entitled to God's riches. And I just came to let somebody know today that whatever you're going through, God will provide. God will provide. I have been there. Even in my short time on this earth, there have been days and there have been moments when I wanted to jump into a black hole because I felt that nobody cared, not even God. Nobody understood what I was going through. At the end of the day, as we look over our lives, we have problems on every hand. And most days we do not know how we are going to make it. We cannot understand how we will make it from one day to the next. And we are prone to look at ourselves more so than look at God. We are utterly consumed with our problems and consumed with our issues and consumed with our circumstances. But God says today that if you cannot trace God, if you cannot behold him, Take a moment and look at the birds. Take a moment and look at the lilies. And look how God takes care of them. And you can say today that just as God said, are you not much more better than they? So somebody needs to put their trust in God today. Him says, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him 
at his word just to know that he is with me. Today I can't leave any pulpit without giving somebody the opportunity to trust God all over again. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Make this thing very specific today. Some of you today, this very moment, have an issue that you're dealing with right now. It's been at the forefront of your mind for some time now. Could be a relationship, I don't know, whether he's the one or she's the one, or what should I do, or am I acting right? Most of us, if not all of us, have money issues at this point in life. And you're wondering how you're going to make it through. 